July 2014, writer Rachel Trezise joined Learning and Participation Officer Tom Goddard in conversation to discuss her influences and inspirations and her current collection of short fiction stories, Cosmic Latte. So let's start with a very basic question. How do you write? Unfortunately, I type straight onto the computer. Um, I wrote my first novel longhand, and that seems like the thing you should be to be a real writer. And there was benefits to that, like no technology in between. That felt right. But now I just don't have time. I used to have a notebook and carry it everywhere with me, and that made me feel like a real writer. But even that's being usurped by my smartphone now because it's so easy to just put, just put notes into. So what are your daily working habits like? Um, I've got a little office in the spare bedroom. And I have to match up my hours to my husband. So he works eight hours a day, like 7 till 4.30. But once I'm at my desk, I'm, I'm quite disciplined at staying there until he comes in. And sometimes if I'm really stuck, I'll go and do the dishes or something. something. Mm. That's the difficulty of working at home. There's always something else to do. So looking at similar themes and returning to similar voices, I was thinking about your work as a kind of episodic nature. It does have this kind of epic scale because you are dealing with similar themes. Is that something you're conscious of? Well, definitely the beginning, because my first novel was autobiographical, so there are quite dark themes in there, poverty and sexual abuse and things. But when I finished that book, I was, I was determined that I wouldn't go back to them, and yet it crept into everything else that I've written. But whenever I start something, I'm determined I'm not going anywhere near drugs, poverty, <laughs> sexual abuse, and it always, always comes out. That's because that, that's me and my voice, I suppose, and that's what made me uh, into a, a person and a writer. You have to um, introduce some elements of research where you're just telling the same story mm -hmm. over and over again. Like I'm saying, however far away I move from my life, my voice still, still finds a way in. There's only so many incidents, I suppose, that happen in your life that you can turn into fiction. You just be telling the same story over and over. Books are often built around being observant, but very selective narrators. Do you think your childhood turned you into that type of observer, that, that type of writer, but observed in that way? Yeah, definitely. Because of my experiences, I had such a lack of confidence. I, I, I never wanted to express myself verbally. So what I did was listen and watch other people a lot. And my mother being the complete opposite to me is uh, very gregarious and outgoing. And I, I always felt that there wasn't room for two people like that in one house so it made me quiet and, and just observe her a lot and kind of lived through it I suppose uh, and I've used different characters later on. The idea of Welshness can be intrinsically linked to, to a sense of failure and I think that's something that creeps in, creeps in through all of your, all of your work actually. It is very very prevalent in, in the family. I was just thinking recently it's uh, the 30th anniversary of the miners' strike and I just think that was the big failure we were seen to have failed as a people at that point. And I think from then on, everybody's confidence just went. And um, parents started pushing on their children not to try it too hard because you would never get it anywhere. That was my childhood. Mm -hmm. And that's what, I, that's what I had in common with the boys. So I, that, it's always there. However much you try to push away from it, well, I'm, I'm not going to fail for that reason. It's still there in the back of your mind that you probably will. So, I mean, it's funny, really, that I got my degree and got published around the same time because it was actually much more important for me, although I'm proud of my degree, it was much more important for me to get that story done than it was. I tried to write a, a novel after that first novel, which as I said, I didn't know how to write a plot or anything. 
and I never finished them. I'd get, I'd get a third of the way through and I didn't know where I was going. I did that three times, it was like three abortive starts. Then I wrote some short stories. And they kind of taught me structure. When I came back to, to writing the novel, I knew I had to plan it from start to finish. Mm -hmm. There was no room for me um, to hope that it worked out on the way. <laughs> Obviously writing short stories and writing novels and, and plays, do you find that there's a, a different length of time for those different mediums or a thing sort of stewing away at different points that you've seen? Yeah, there's always something stewing away at some point. I like writing short stories more than any other media. It's because I can I can write a short story, plan, write, finish a short story in two weeks. Then you get like an immediate buzz that you finish something. Most of the novels I've written and the one I'm writing now have taken six years worth of it. Um, it's just it's, it's constant rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. It's so boring. Do you have an editor? Uh, well, with the short stories, yes, but with the novels, it. it it's not any one editor, they tend to change, so usually you have to do a few drafts before it even gets to an editor. And is there someone that you use regularly? Or no, it, no, that's the problem, it's never an ongoing editor. Oh, okay. Because I've moved from different companies, so it's always somebody different. Do you sometimes get a different feel from a different editor then, if you see what I mean? And then do you have to drag them in and say, this is the way you're editing this, is not the way I write? No, it's the opposite. I, I, yeah. I, I always welcome anything any editor's got to say because I, do, I, sti I, I still don't think I'm doing it right. There's always more to learn. So if an editor tells me something, my instinct is to think they're right and I'm wrong. So I always take their advice. So how do you keep yourself inspired then? It's a, it's a mixture of, of things. Like Sometimes I'll read a book which I really love um, or a film, but rarely to be honest. It's mostly eavesdropping on people's conversations mm -hmm. on the street. And you know, you, you maybe only catch a snippet of half a sentence, but it'll be something interesting. And you have to make the rest up there. Mm -hmm. I was interested in your titles as well. Sometimes they can be sort of a, 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 la a real labour. I just wonder whether that was something that came immediately or whether it was different each time. It's either one or the other, but never exact, exactly the same. Like sometimes I get the title before I've even started writing something. And I just think that's a great title. I've got to write something to fit that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I write something and it takes me what, another six months to find the title for it. It's either one or the other. There's an even more quote that says that writing for him was an exercise in the use of language mm -hmm. rather than an attempt to explore character. And I wonder if you could re react to that. Well, as much as I love exploring and playing with language, that's a, that's a part of it, but I think character is the most important thing. Is there a literary figure there, or character from, from film or television that you would hold up as...? Mm. No. And because to write fiction, you always have to simplify people. Mm. People are always much more complicated than they are in fiction. So I'm always trying to make them a little bit more complicated to get more. Because people are really contradictory, you know, politics and thoughts and issues about things can never be written down cleanly. So I'm always trying to make it a little bit more complicated and, and yet still be readable. Mm. Is it strange, you've also won a number of awards, is it strange to live in the high life sometimes and you go to receive the awards and the accolade and then returning to the daily grind? Yeah, you, yeah, you kind of get used to it. You, after, after so many of those experiences, you know there's just going to be that night and that you're going to be back at the desk struggling for money again. So, um, when I won the Dylan Toff Prize, I thought it was going to last forever. I mean, sixty thousand pounds is not to be sniffed at. It was about it lasted yes. me three years. But 
But when I won it, I thought, that's it, they're going to have £60,000 for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think of Dylan Thomas in terms of his legacy for Wales then? But I always felt that even before the Dylan Thomas Prize was announced, I was, people would ask me what I thought of Dylan Thomas. But yeah, that's, you know, Dylan Thomas is fine, his writing's fine, but all, all that accolade for somebody who's dead. We'd all you try mm -hmm. and, you know, procure her. And I, li I really like his work, you know, and, and I like uh, the dark themes in it, but that never comes out in the way, in the way we talk about it. No. Like, it seems like he's a, you know, upstanding citizen or who, who drank too much, that, that's it. A couple of other questions. One was the influence of, of America in terms of the film, in terms of the music that came over and sort of... Like, yeah. I didn't believe I was a proper person because I didn't have an American accent. Because when you don't see yourself reflected in the media, you know, on the TV in front of yourself, you think you start to think that you don't exist, that you're nothing, that you're meaningless. I know you said you were quiet when you were younger and in school, but could you make that cutting comment that made the group fall around laughing? Not, not intentionally, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I made a lot of people laugh by dyeing my hair blue when I was 16. But no, no, I mean, all that came later with the writing, and I learned about timing, comedy timing. And One more question talking about people's obsessions being extreme metaphors and that these kind of metaphors can be lying in wait and that they're private mythology that becomes public and you're looking at something that is past and then you have present which are the things that you're listening to but then there's also the future of the thing that you, that you produce that it has to have a life in people's minds as they read it and I was wondering whether you whether you see that obsession as a kind of as a stepping stone to those things or or whether it, it it's just part of the process. I'm a really obsessive person. Anyway. Long before writing came, I obsessed about just anything, anything you can obsess about, food, people, everything. So, so when I started writing, that gave me an excuse to have obsessions, and then I started thinking, oh, it's okay. Um, actually, I'm okay. <laughs> I was just learning to be a writer all along. Um, an example is the the novel I'm working on now. One of the main characters is a Hasidic Jew, and I became obsessed with Hasidic Jews when I was. 23 and I first saw one on the underground in New York and I didn't know I didn't know that these people existed what, what is that guy dressed like that for so <laughs> I went and researched it all and I thought yeah that's really interesting that there's somebody who's that religious and, and doesn't uh, like partake in life is actually living in New York this place <laughs> full of life <laughs> but then I, but I didn't have the tools or the skills I suppose to write something that far away from my own life so it just went in the drawer and then when I was looking for, uh, like the other half of the novel is about a prostitute and she needed somebody to fall in love with. And so this was 15 years later, all of a sudden I thought, oh, the Hasidic Jew. So I was kind of Well, thank you ever so much. And, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.